Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the, sons of his, or the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malin and Kilian also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And there's still son, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you. Oftentimes, this part of scripture here in verses 16 and 17 is used in, uh, in like wedding vows, which is kind of funny because this is a, uh, a daughter-in-law saying it to a mother-in-law. It's not a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. It says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they, be, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And you kind of see at the end, I don't think we're going to get there tonight, but Naomi changes her name. Um, really in that time, like the name spoke of like who you were, right? Um, a good example is, um, who were the twin boys that were born? I can't remember. Jacob and Esau. Remember them? And Esau, do you know what Esau's name means? 
Harry, right? Like, because he, he was a Harry baby. And, uh, and so their names, like, actually meant something. And so a lot of times when I meet people, you know, and especially unique names, right? I'm like, what, where did that come from? What does that mean? And, like, 80% of the time, the person doesn't know what their name means, right? I'm sure if we went out of the room right now, m- most of you probably don't know the meaning of your name, right? Maybe you do. I don't know. But the name was, like, intentional, you know? Like, it, it spoke of, like, the character and the person. And you kind of see that here with Naomi. She changes her name um, from, you know, Naomi, which meant pleasant, to Mara, which was bitter, right? Because she, she kind of saw, you know, the judgment of God and the things that came from leaving God, right? That was the whole, like, premise of what we studied last week is Elimelech, the, the spiritual leader of the home, of his wife and his, his two sons, that he, he leaves his home where the Lord is, where, he, where the God has established the Israelites to stay and to be, and obviously a famine comes, and we know the famine comes because of what? Sin. Thank you, sin. It was because of sin, right? It always, became, it always came because of sin. And we talked about last week how, like, there's, like, punishment is a good thing when it comes from a good and loving authority, right? And so God is a good and loving father. He is the authoritative figure that wants to correct us when we do wrong, right? And that is, that is a sign of love, you know, a sign of, you know, not loving your children is not correcting them when they do something wrong. And so part of that judgment, part of that correction was this famine that came into the land. And Elimelech, which I, can, I feel like I can relate to, Elimelech starts to walk by sight rather than by faith. Okay, he's starting to think logically. Okay, there is no food here for my family. I've got to provide. I've, I've got to leave what God has established, what God has set forth. I got to leave his presence to go to a pagan country to get bread, to feed my family. Like logically, by sight, that makes sense. I don't think any of us would argue that. But spiritually, by faith, it doesn't make sense, right? And for us as Christians, what are we called to live by and walk by? Faith, right? Not sight. Now, that doesn't mean, like, God wants us to go walk around, like, with a blindfold on, right? That's not the case. But in a spiritual sense, like, we've got we've to we've tr- lean and trust in God, even if, it makes, even if a situation or a choice makes more sense logically or, you know, it, it fits right and our gut instinct says to do this. It's more important that we trust in the Lord. Because what we end up seeing, because he walks by sight, we're going to see that a lot of things happen that are not good. And it's ironic because he leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, right? He leaves Bethlehem, the place where God is, the place where God has established. He leaves his presence to go to this pagan country where they are doing pagan things, immorality. They go there to avoid dying from the famine, right? Isn't that the gist of it all, to avoid dying? Well, what ends up happening when they're in Moab? They die, right? The father, the two sons, they die, right? The, the, the one thing, again, this is ironic, the one thing that they were trying to avoid ends up happening, you know? And, and I wonder, like, when we step outside of God's will and we step outside of his presence and we're not walking with him, you know, it, it ultimately will lead to death, a spiritual death, right? I'm not saying it's going to lead to a physical death because you've walked outside of God's will, but I would warn you not to, not to test it. Um, and on the flip side, it's like, you know, what would have happened if, if he was faithful to the Lord, if he did stay, you know, what, what would have transpired? 
would we have had Ruth? Because, I mean, think about it. Out of all these bad decisions and all the bad things that happened, who came out of this? Who, who came back to Judah? Who came back to Bethlehem with Naomi? Ruth, right? And, and what's the book called? Ruth. Like, so would we, ha- would we have had Ruth without all these bad things happening? I don't know. Maybe not, right? So the question is, here's the question. Because God can turn bad things into good, right? He's promised that in Romans 8, 28. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, right? So we know that God can work bad things for his good. And oftentimes it becomes our good as well, right? So the question is, okay, like, is it okay to disobey God knowing that he can turn those bad things into good? No, right? I mean, because we could kind of logically say and, and, and talk this out that, well, they made all these bad decisions, and if they didn't make all those bad decisions, we never would have had Ruth. Well, I think that's to put God in a box, and that's to say that, like, without us doing these bad things, we never would have had Ruth, we never had Boaz, we never had the book of Ruth. No, I think it still would have happened, but God uses these bad things in spite of us sometimes for his glory. And that's how awesome and powerful he is. So the point is, you know, don't just do bad things. And I think Paul kind of speaks to this and alludes to it. Just because we know that there's grace and God's going to show grace, we don't just do bad things knowing that God can flip the tables and, and turn it into good. Because ultimately what we see happening is there's always going to be consequences, right? I mean, the, 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 the two sons die and the father dies. So... We see this happening in verse 3. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. She was left and her two sons. So now there's no, no spiritual leader in the home, no one to lead them as a man. So now the wives, now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. And so now they, they make another mistake, right? They marry someone outside of the faith, okay? Speaking of Israel, they marry a Moabite. Is that what God had instructed? Here, here we go again with the same question that we just had. Okay? Is, it, is it good that they married a Moabite knowing that Ruth was one of them? Right? Is it, was it good for, him to, for them to disobey God's command of, of marrying outside of the faith knowing that Ruth was one of them? Again, I would say no. Disobeying God is, is never a good thing. Okay? It's never a good thing. But again, God uses it, and God uses it as an example for us, what, a deeper example of how God can redeem and use people who we see as outcasts, as people who could be unlovable, and that's Ruth. That's a picture of the Moabite, right? Because she is going to be welcomed into the family of God, just like we are as Gentiles, right? As Gentiles, God welcomes us and grafts us into the family of God, because of his grace. Not because of anything Ruth did, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus does. So in verse uh, 5, it says, In both uh, Malin and Kilian, they also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So again here, um, now she's, she's all alone um, from her original family. She has her two uh, daughter-in-laws, um, but they, they're not 
they're not from Israel. They, they have served other gods. They have worshipped other gods. Um, and so Naomi is, this is different territory for her, I would say. So in verse 6, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So, again, they left Bethlehem because God had, had placed a judgment upon them. A famine had come. Their fields were dried up. They left. And here in verse 6, they find out, or she finds out, that the judgment was finally over, right? That the judgment had passed, that Bethlehem now once again was fruitful and it had grain, and God had visited his people by providing bread. So now the, the, the house of bread, Bethlehem, it means, finally has bread again. And I would say here again, we see the grace of God. The fact that God would allow this to happen again. And the fact, as we're going to see in a minute, that God would allow Naomi back. That God would allow Naomi to come back to Bethlehem, knowing that the famine has passed and the bread is here again. There's so much grace in that, guys. Because Naomi had walked away. She had walked away. And yeah, maybe we could blame her husband, that he's the one that led them to Moab and away from God. But she is also her own individual person. And she walked away. And for 10 years, she was away. But God welcomes her back. That's grace. She had nothing to offer, right? Nothing. She had nothing to offer. And yet God brought bread and allows her to come back and get some. Again, that is God's grace. Isn't that what grace means? To receive something good that you don't deserve? Isn't that what we see with Christ all the time in, in regards to us? And so she hears from Moab again that God was doing good things and she wanted to be a part of it. She wanted to be a part of it. And verse 7 says, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. She's coming home, right? And this reminded me of the prodigal son. You know how the prodigal son, you remember, he grew up in a good household. And you guys remember what the word prodigal means? Wasteful. Wasteful. In Luke chapter 15, you guys remember this. We studied this a little while ago. Jesus gives us the parable here. He says this, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, so he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his, his possessions with prodigal living, so wasteful living. And when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, right, just... It hit him. There was a realization. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I'll arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven, and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And remember, as we studied through this, this was like a, a real example of the love and the grace that God has for us, right? Because here this son has like finally come to his senses. He's hit rock bottom and there's repentance in his heart. He changes his way of thinking. He realizes that 
it's not all about me. I need to go back to my father. I need him. I need to trust in him. And so before you can even get out an apology, you know, a, a, a confession, a repentance, you know, via words, it says that the father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him because he had compassion on him. I mean, is that not the example that God has for us? And so I want to encourage you that, I mean, I don't know, I don't know your hearts, okay? I, I can judge your fruit, and even there, that's hard to do, but it's possible. But in the end, I cannot judge your hearts. And so I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I don't know if you're far from him, if you walked away from him, if you're walking with him. But for those that have walked away from him, you know, he is always looking out for you. He's always watching and wanting and waiting for you to turn back. But remember, we serve a God who is a gentleman who has given you free will. So he does not force you. He does not force you. He doesn't make you do anything. Otherwise, it's not genuine, it's not true, and it's not love, right? But he will do everything on his side as much as possible to bring you back without forcing you to. He'll show you love, he'll show you compassion. And we see the father here that even before, like, he saw him at, at the horizon. And when he sees his son coming home, he was constantly looking for his son to come back. And he runs and he hugs him and he kisses him. And he says, this is the son is speaking to the father. Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and before you. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Right? He's like, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just bring me back as a hired servant. And it says, again, he arose, came to his father when he was still a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he's like completely ignoring his son. He says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Who had the best robe? The father. He says, go get my robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, right? The signet, the, the symbol of the family and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son, my, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found and they began to be merry. That's the prodigal son, the, the wasteful living. He left his father. He left the presence of his father and the presence of his father provided so much. Love, compassion, food, protection, shelter, a, a, a steady foundation. He left all that. And you see what he ended up getting? getting? I mean, he, yeah, he got everything he wanted and more. He lost everything. He didn't have enough food. He couldn't even eat anything. He couldn't, he couldn't provide for himself, right? And so outside of God's presence, that's where we will become. But God doesn't say, look, you had your chance, you know, you were in my presence before. You can't come back now. No, there is always an opportunity. But the Bible also warns us that tomorrow is not promised. So don't waste today. He says, come back. Come back today. And we see this example with Naomi. Ten years later, she finally comes back to God's place, to Bethlehem, to Judah. She finally comes back. And she's welcomed back. As we see the people, they, they rejoice when she comes back. Right? The father, the servants, they rejoice when the prodigal son comes back. They, they throw a party. And so in verse 8 of, of Ruth, again, it says, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her, father's, her, to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so, so Naomi is, in a sense, as she's speaking to these two young ladies, she's also asking God to treat these ladies with the same kindness of the way that these ladies have treated their own husbands and her. And it really made me think 
what if God treated me the way I treated my spouse? What if God treated me the way I treated others? <laughs> Could you imagine that? Would that change things in how I, how I treat people? Jesus says this in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, the good thing, the reality is, God is much more merciful to us than we are to others. He's much more kind to us than we are to others. But it puts into perspective the kindness that we should show to one another. So again, she says, as she speaks to her two daughter-in-laws, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, the dead referring to their husbands. And the Lord in verse 9 says, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And I think Naomi is kind of just thinking wisely here. Um, you know, she's just thinking, I guess, in a sense, logically again, that it's, she's thinking of these two women, right? They, they have no place with her. She can't provide them husbands. And they're coming to a land that's, that's foreign to them. And so she's saying, go back to your, your family where you have strong ties, where you can find new husbands, where you can find rest. It just makes more sense to go back to Moab than to a new land in Israel. It's really interesting that Naomi would say that. And, and as she kind of describes this marriage of, you know, finding a husband, she's, she infers through this husband that she can find rest. And I think that's really cool because in marriage, that's a really good description of that in marriage, there should be a place and a source of rest, peace, and refreshment, right? Not a, a chore or a burden, right? God intended marriage to be good, to be fruitful. He created Eve to be a helper, right? Not a burden, not a, you know, a gnat that is buzzing by your ear and annoying. No. Between a husband and a wife, there should be rest and refreshment. And so it says she kissed them, they lift up their voices, and they wept. And so we see the real emotion that they have. Um, it's evidence that they had real love for one another um, between Naomi and her daughter-in-law's. So in verse 10, it says, they said to her in response, surely we will return with you to your people. It's like they were both dedicated to stay with Naomi, right? They're like, no, we're, we're going with you, right? We're going with you. Do you think they were genuine in their statement? Half of them were. One of them was, right? There's many things we say like, yeah, you know, as, as Ruth says, you know, I'll go where you go. I'll die where you die. Like, you know, we say this to our, our, you know, 14-year-old selves, and we say this to, you know, some girl or guy because we're infatuated and like, oh my gosh, I love you so much. If you die, I'll die. And if you go there, I'll go. And, and it's like, do you even know what you're saying? Right? And I'm, I'm questioning Orpah, right? Like, she's, she's committing, and she's saying the same thing. And then, and then I'm thinking, okay, in, in, a, in a spiritual sense, when it comes to our relationship with Christ— Many of us say, you know, God, I will do this. I will follow you. But do you know how many false conversions there are? It's kind of an oxymoron because you, 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 there can't really be a false conversion because there, there is no conversion. But how many people think that they, they are committed to Christ and they are walking with Christ because they've declared something, but they haven't done it? There's a big difference in that. Commitment means doing. 
Commitment means sticking to your word. And so, I warn you, and I think it's a warning to many of us, because, you know, we like to say, oh, you know, like, you know, this person's saved, and this person, you know, got saved because of this and that. And I'm like, okay, well, there has to be a true conversion. There has to be a commitment, and there has to be evidence of that conversion. And it's not to be pessimistic. It's to be realistic. It's what the Bible tells us to do. Like, there, you have to count the costs, right? And so here they're, they're weeping. They're saying, look, we're going to miss you, but we're not leaving you. We'll return with you to your people. Both of them say this. But Naomi says this in verse 11. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And so Naomi is, is basically here is like the premise of the entirety of the book. The kinsman redeemer. And this was all established back in, in God's law in Deuteronomy. And this is what Naomi is referring to because she's saying, look, you know, I don't know how old she is. I'm sure she's some type of old because her daughters were, or her sons were married. And she's saying, look, can, is, there a, is there a son in my womb that I can give him to you? And obviously that son has to grow up to an age where they can get married, right? So like, but she's saying, I, I don't have that. Because the idea came from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. The idea of this kinsman redeemer where it was a man's duty to marry his brother's wife if the brother dies without having a child. But there were no more brothers. Both brothers died. There were, there were no more sons, so there was no kinsman redeemer. And, and the idea behind this was to keep the family name going, to keep the inheritance going. Like family was really vital and important in this time. It really was. I think, you know, we, we kind of have a little bit of that. Like, we care about our families, but it was deeper, in a sense, in this time. It was more close-knit. It was more well-respected. And especially in the time that we're living in now, guys, and I'm not implying us. I'm implying the state of the world, is that it's completely against the family dynamic. Completely against why do we think that in the past, you know, just five years that there's been an uptick in riots for abortions, for uh, same-sex marriages, for transgenderism, all these things that combat the family unit? You cannot continue a family with these things, right? Like we've lost the reverence and the respect that God has ordained with a man and a woman and the offspring that they're to have. Right? So in this time, like, we may think of it as weird. Like, we're, we're, we're probably like cringing because like, oh, the brother has to go marry his brother's wife if the brother dies? Right? Like, I don't want to do that. Well, no, it was, again, it was a different custom and a different culture. We're just not used to it. They would look at us as weird if we didn't do it. Right? The same, the same way that, that we're cringing. So in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says this in verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Okay, this is, again, this is what Ruth is referring to. It's, it's called the kinsman redeemer. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which, will bear, uh, which she bears, will succeed to, the, succeed to the name of his, brother, his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. 
Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build upon his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. And so this, this was a disgrace. It shows you the, the vital importance. If somebody were to reject in being the kinsman redeemer, it was not a good thing. It was not a good thing. And so here, you know, the, the kinsman redeemer is speaking of the brother who would then continue on with the family name. He's the redeemer of the type that he, he, in a sense, comes in and saves the day. He saves the family name. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Ruth, guys. And ultimately, we're going to see there's one man who becomes the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. You guys know his name? Boaz. Boaz. And so we see an example of this actually happening in Genesis 38, where Judah, Judah has a son, Ur, Er, I don't know how you want to pronounce it. He dies, and his wife, Tamar, was given to the next brother, Onan, in order to have a child. Onan, too, eventually dies, and in the end, Tamar ended up tricking and seducing Judah in order to get pregnant. She would give birth to two sons, Perez and Zerah, who would be the fathers of the rest of the tribe of Judah. And actually, at the end of the book of Ruth, the people of the city pray that God would bless Ruth's descendants like he did the descendants of Judah and Tamar. We see this in Ruth chapter 4. And so ultimately, Naomi is saying, there is no kinsman redeemer in my family. I cannot provide you any sons. And so she says, go back. So in verse 12, I don't have the time. Oh, we got like two minutes. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And I think here, one thing that we see with Naomi, I don't know if it's intentional or if it's unintentional, but she kind of warns them of the cost of coming with her. That she can't provide the things that they want or that they need or that it won't be easy at the very least. Because really, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, and you're probably thinking it too, why didn't she just tell them to come with her to Israel? Why didn't she tell them to come with her to Israel and, and serve the God that she has and that all their problems would go away and that everything, you know, would be perfect and right and good and, you know, be like a fairy tale. Isn't that kind of what we tell people when, it, when we refer to God? Like, when we tell them to come to God, like, it's all going to be awesome. It's all going to be great. Like, he's the best. And that's not a lie, but we also miss the other aspect of it that it's not easy and that you've got to count the costs. Like, Christianity is simple, and it is, it is easy in the sense that Jesus Christ has done the work, and the only thing he's required of us is faith, and even the faith that we have comes from him to begin with, right? But he says, and he challenges us over and over again. We see examples of it in the Gospels where people say, I want to follow you, Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, yeah, come on, let's go. I mean, he wants them to come. It's not like he's trying to stop people from following him. But he wants a true commitment. Just like we saw earlier, both Orpah and Naomi said, we will follow you. We will go with you to the land of Israel. We'll go with your people. But we're going to see that only one of two goes. 
Only one of them really counted the cost and, and really committed. The other one could not commit. There's, there's a cost that should be thought of and taken in before we follow Jesus. And so, yeah, we wish, you know, we would say all these wonderful, nice things, which is, yeah, part of the gospel. But the other part of it is, look, there's a real enemy. It's not easy. It's a battle. I mean, you look at the, old, the New Testament and Paul's description of putting on the armor of God and, you know, not wrestling against flesh and blood, but of principalities and powers of, of this error. Like, there is a real battle. It's not easy. You know what I mean? It's the best decision we can make. There's so much goodness that comes from it, but it's not easy. You've got to count your costs. And so in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, it says this. I'll close here. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them. Right, he's got a bunch of people following him. And Jesus is, is, is he's about the numbers, and he's about the, the, he's about the, the quantity and the quality. Right? Like he, qual, quantity in the sense that he doesn't want anyone to perish. Right? He doesn't want anyone to perish. But he also doesn't want people to falsely think that they're actually following him and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. He wants quality. So he turns around to the multitude. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he laid the foundations, not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet with him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus warns them and challenges them, and it is a good thing because it builds strong, healthy, courageous, committed Christians and disciples of Jesus. We are not wimpy, uncommitted people. That's not what Christ wants. He wants us to be committed. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to have the wherewithal and the willingness to see it through. Now, Paul calls it a race. And it's not a sprint, it's, it's a marathon. It's not, you know, a 60-second sprint. No, it's, it's an 80-year life that you have to be committed and you have to finish well. You have to finish the race. And he says, look, if, if you don't have that wherewithal, if you don't have that willingness, if you don't have that commitment, don't even attempt the journey. Because it's a decision that demands the utmost seriousness and commitment. And so Jesus warns us for every potential disciple that, that, yes, come to him. By all means, come to him. Find rest. Find grace. Find, you know, forgiveness. But know that there's a cost to it. He says, if you want to follow me, there's one thing that you're going to have to do. And you guys remember what that is? Take up your cross and follow me. And what is taking up your cross? What does that mean? Dying to self. Right? Isn't that what the symbol of the cross is? It's, it's, it was a murder weapon. It's, it's, a, it's a dying to self. It's not a, a literal killing of yourself, but it's a, Lord, you are first and you are foremost in everything I do going forward. I mean, that's a real commitment, guys. Isn't commitment important in relationships? It is, don't you think? Maybe not in 2023. We don't see it in the world as much, but 
for a good, healthy relationship, commitment should be involved. It should be involved. And so the thing is, we think it costs us something to be a disciple of Jesus, and it does. There's a little bit of a cost to it. But I would encourage you and I would challenge you and I would question you with this, that how much more is it going to cost you to reject him?